This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 43, recorded on August 8th, 2014. I'm your host, Ed Horowitz, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University College of Medicine. I'm here along with my co-host, Neelay Shah and, and Robin Dennis. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks, Ed. Uh, today on uh, This Week in Pediatric Oncology, we'll discuss Langerhans cell histiatosis. We have one of the world's experts with us today. Dr. Carl Allen from Texas Children's Hospital. Thank you for having me. Hey, Carl. So um, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to have you here, and it's a pleasure to see you again since we had the opportunity to train together. Well, I had the opportunity to train under you while I was a fellow at TCH. Um, Just real quick, can you give us in the audience an idea of sort of where you grew up, where you came from, what led you to Texas Children's, and how you kind of made your way to where you are now? Sure. So um, I actually grew up in Tucson, Arizona. My father got a um, position here at uh, what was then Columbus Children's Hospital when I was uh, 18, and so I spent my summer when I was 18 here in Columbus, and my first job was actually in the Wexner Research Center uh, trying to comply with new OSHA rules that every chemical had to have a label on it, so hopefully there's no more of those labels left since they're decades old now, but so I, my research career got started off here in Wexner, and then I went to Duke University for undergraduate. Uh, I worked for a couple of years. Uh, in research after college at, uh, at Yale, looking at uh, bone marrow failure syndromes, and then uh, came back to Ohio State for my MD and uh, PhD. Uh, I did my graduate work in uh, B cell and T cell development and looking at uh, how mutations result in leukemias and lymphomas uh, in Dr. Laichu Wu's lab. Um, and then I uh, went to Texas Children's Hospital in the Baylor College of Medicine uh, program for fellowship training in hematology oncology. and uh, I've been there as faculty uh, over the last six years since I finished my training in my fellowship. Great. Well, your area of expertise is Langerhans cell histocytosis. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, starting off by just what that is, what that disease is. Well, I think one of the um, things that's compelling that, that makes such LCH or Langerhans cell histocytosis such a fascinating disease to study is that we really have very little uh, idea of what it is or what causes it um, relative to other problems that uh, that children run into with um, with blood disorders. Clinically, LCH is defined as uh, a disease where patients can develop from a single lesion that can be in the bone or the uh, or skin. Uh, that could be relatively trivial and not require therapy at all, but could spontaneously resolve to the most significant cases where kids can have uh, involvement of their bone marrow, liver, spleen. Uh, and this is really a dangerous, life-threatening uh, condition, very similar to acute myelogenous leukemia or some of the more aggressive uh, childhood cancers. Everybody's heard of leukemia, but most folks really haven't heard of lung cystocytosis. Is it an extraordinarily rare disease? Uh, so that's a good qu- question. I think uh, a lot of funding agencies uh, and scientific uh, organizations kind of bin LCH into what's called the rare diseases or orphan diseases. And I, I think it's great that it gets support from the rare disease organizations. But if you think about our field in pediatric hematology and oncology, every single disease we study is a rare disease. 
it's kind of interesting. One of the things that's been fascinating to me is, well, why hasn't LCH been included in uh, children's oncology group? Why hasn't it been included in, um, you know, why doesn't every uh, uh, institution have a histiocytosis and leukemia and lymphoma program? And I think one of the reasons is we haven't really understood uh, what causes the disease, so it's hard for us to understand who's supposed to take care of, uh, of the disease. Um, and for example, I... Um, Hodgkin's disease, which virtually everybody's heard of, the NIH funds, could always fund better, but um, uh, it occurs with uh, the exact same frequency or very similar frequency as LCH, and they have very similar outcomes. Most children uh, do, do relatively well, but the children who have more aggressive disease, you know, it's really a life-threatening problem that requires more research. Um, so at ASH last year, the American Society of Hematology, I think there, there were approximately, you can look me up to see if this is correct, but I think somewhere around 500 scientific presentations on Hodgkin's disease, and there were three on LCH. Um, you know, so why is this? It's a similar frequency, it's a similar uh, problem, and I, I think it's just been a really difficult uh, disease for us to wrap our, our heads around, um, because in some ways it looks like uh, it has a lot of similarities to an infection or an inflammatory or autoimmune disease, um, and in other ways it does look a lot like the um, childhood malignancies we take care of, but I think the differences have made it... Uh, difficult for people to really understand it. Hmm. Maybe help us understand a little bit when, you know, if a child comes to a doctor's office that looks pale, they can get a CBC and maybe diagnose leukemia, or at least begin to diagnose leukemia, what should tip off a, a physician caring for a child that they need to think about LCH? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, um, you know, LCH is a, one of these diseases that could probably be on the, uh, you know, the residency morning report differential diagnosis in almost every single case because it can affect almost any part of the body. You know, if you get, um, I guess I'll start at the top, you know, if you get pituitary involvement, chasing patients can re present with diabetes insipidus, which means um, you lose the ability to control your thirst and urination mechanisms. They can develop mass lesions in the brain, which can present as headaches. They can develop um, uh, lesions in the mastoid, which can result in draining ears that look like a lot like otitis media. Um, their lungs can be involved and look like chronic asthma. Um, any bone in the body can be involved. Uh, they can result in either just chronic pain or pathologic fractures. The blood system can also be involved, and so kids can look like a leukemia patient where they have a very low um, uh, blood count. Uh, sometimes an elevated white count or elevated inflammatory markers. Um, and then the skin lesions are especially problematic because, you know, that's sort of the bread and butter of general pediatrics is babies, all babies have some kind of strange skin problem. And, um, you know, usually it goes away with time or with uh, some minimal therapy. And we actually just did a survey of, um, there's a paper that Steve Simcoe is the first author of that's coming out in um, Journal of Pediatrics where we looked at our patients who had LCH skin disease and it took a median of one year from the first uh, symptom to uh, time that the patient was biopsied. And it's actually a very simple diagnosis to, to diagnose LCH, but you have to think of it, which is the tricky part, because mm -hmm. um, it's just a, a simple biopsy, and it's a very characteristic um, uh, uh, finding on the biopsy sample. So I think just the, lot, the many different ways LCH can present make it uh, difficult to catch, and then also... Um, because it is relatively rare compared to other causes of headaches, skin, you know, skin disease, bone pain, it's typically not the first thing people think of, but hopefully after, you know, like with any good medicine, after you've excluded the more common things, if a patient isn't responding well, it can lead to biopsy. And luckily for LCH, usually biopsy, um, yes, patients need therapy, and 
delays of you know months or years are not optimal, but you know uh, taking a week or two to make a diagnosis or a month or two usually is not a pro- doesn't impact the long term outcomes. Similar to whenever we have concerns with uh, pancytopenia, and if they're evaluated by a rheumatologist, we advise that a patient should be um, should get a bone marrow before you start treating with steroids. Is there anything uh, similar to that that we should think about? Are there any treatments that before you start a patient on a treatment that you should be evaluating them for uh, LCH first? So that brings up I think two things to my mind. The first is. Again, going back to this, the skin paper, one thing I forgot to mention is that of the um, patients who came to us with presumed um, skin-limited disease, 50% of them turned out to have underlying high-risk disease. And that's a big deal because, you know, skin-limited disease doesn't really require therapy unless, you know, it's causing a patient local irritation or you, know, you can treat if it's causing pain or if it is a site of infection. Um, but patients who ha- who really have um, multi-system high-risk disease, I mean, this could be life-threatening. You know, and a delay of a couple months maybe could um, could be important in those cases. And so, I would say, you know, one message we're trying to get out to general pediatricians and dermatologists is, you know, never assume that someone has skin-limited LCH. It's a diagnosis that can only be proven after you've gone through uh, studies, which can include. Um, you know, schedule survey, um, PET scan is is uh, very effective if if patients have access to it. But you need to cons- you know to really evaluate and exclude um, high risk disease. Now, for your question about bone marrow, one interesting thing that we're that we've been wrestling with is um, in a recent study where we looked at uh, at one of the mutations associated with LCH called BRAFE600E, we're able to identify using a technique called quantitative PCR, extremely low levels of cells carrying that mutation. And what we found was that in patients with high-risk disease, uh, 50% of the patients who had uh, BRAF E600D cells in their bone marrow, so these cells that are causing the disease, were reported as having normal bone marrows by mm-hmm. pathology. Um, and so what we think is happening is that these patients have you know, the mutation starts in precursor cells that then develop into the cells that look like the LCH lesions that we're more familiar with, and that you know acquisition of these antigens like CD207 and CD1A, which are the diagnostic markers, is probably a late event. And so if somebody has a bone marrow that looks normal, but they're not doing well otherwise, or they look like they're more severe, I think you, one needs to consider the possibility they really have high-risk disease. It's just um, we're still developing the tools to be able to more specifically identify that. So since there's not a lot known about some of the path- pathophysiology and even the treatments and the outcomes of this disease, what specifically is your interest in terms of your research and what you're doing in your lab to try to sort out LCH more? So um, I think you know, just to get a foothold on the disease, you know, with our lab, and um, I mean, there's, there's certainly other labs and um, uh, consortia and at a local, national, international levels who are starting who are asking the same questions, um, is to really just understand what causes the disease. And I think based on some of uh, recent research from our group and others, what we're realizing is that even though LCH is a common diagnosis, um, where the pathology samples you know, from a single lesion patient or a high-risk patient may look the same under the microscope, the route to get to that lesion is, is, highly, is very different. And that likely it's both the whatever the factors are that are driving the cells to turn into LCH as well as the state of differentiation of the cells that get the mutation or whatever whatever the other stimulus is that leads to an individual's particular manifestation of the disease. That may be a little bit mm-hmm. convoluted, but that's just to say, for example, if a patient has a single skin lesion, 
we hypothesize that there's some precursor cell that's only allowed to travel within that area of skin that um, has the misinformation that leads it to turn into LCH, where if a patient has a stem cell, uh, for example, that uh, has the activation, then perhaps those are the patients that develop uh, you know, diseased cells uh, throughout the body. So then can you help us understand how this research might translate to novel therapies to... Right. So I think it's, there's two steps. One is LCH is treated basically the same in everybody. So it's called what we call empiric therapy, meaning it's therapy that we've just found that works based on clinical trials by the Histocyte Society and other groups. Um, we don't know why it works, but it seems to be effective. Now, having said that, it, you know, it, it still fails about 50% of the time. Um, and so there's definitely room for improvement. And I think where we need to go in the future is to, fi- to, to come up with... Um, not just the diagnosis of LCH, but say you have LCH and it'll be stratified based on, you, you know, whatever mutations might be associated with that disease, whatever the, the state of differentiation of the cells are that they arise, you know, what are the clinical manifestations of the disease. And, you know, much like we take care of neuroblastoma now, I think mm-hmm. you'll come up with some hierarchy of risk factors that say, well, this patient can just be observed versus uh, another patient perhaps needs chemotherapy, but not a lot of chemotherapy. And then how long do we need to keep the chemotherapy going? Are there biomarkers we can follow response to therapy? And so the idea would be to get the most effective therapy in the patients with the least toxicity. Um, and so I think that's the direction we're going is to help to risk stratify, but then also if we can identify mechanisms of pathogenesis, we can come up with um, a little bit more um, rational approaches to um, fix what's going wrong. And what would you say is... is uh one of the keys to once you to, to proving these therapies are useful, would would uh, greater funding be of help in the clinical trials? Obviously, it's always more of help, but or or cooperative group studies. How would you see us moving forward in pediatric oncology in general? I think the the reason the field has moved forward over the last decades is because no single person can. I mean, there's a lot of clever people, but no one's clever enough to to be able to take uh, a cumulative experience from complex processes, turn that into therapy and then prove that therapy is both safe and effective, right? That requires cooperation. And I think cooperative science is really one of the, the things that makes pediatric oncology um, uh, the explosion in progress over the last 30 or 40 years. And LCH has been somewhat excluded from that process. Um, uh, so I think even though we see you know, a v- relatively large number of patients at Texas, we're, a group like ours is well-suited to, I think, make some observations and develop hypotheses, but then we're going to require you know, larger groups to put all our patients together to test things prospectively to really not just look back at our experience and say, how did patients do, but, you know, test things in a hypothesis-driven manner where we can really compare risk factors, you know, toxicity and efficacy of uh, different strategies. So I, I think ho- hopefully in the future we'll get we'll get uh, LCH into um, COG. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez Galindo and I um, submitted a grant to St. Baldrick's Foundation, which just funded a North American-wide consortium, so I think that's a step in the right direction um, as well. And I think as we're learning more about LCH, there is, there's a little bit more willingness to embrace it because it does truly appear to uh, at least be in the family of blood disorders that, um, that our profession typically treats. And um, I think some of the um, molecular pathways that seem to be involved in LCH have drugs that can specifically target them. And, and so it's certainly worth figuring out the best way to, to use those strategies. And then just like in the more classically considered hematologic malignancies like acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia, 
when chemotherapy fails, the children go to hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Is there a role of transplantation, stem cell transplantation in this disease? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, stem cell transplantation is curative um, for LCH. As you know, it you know even in the best circumstances, it does carry some risks. So this is part of the the whole risk benefit ratio of when do you go to transplant? Um, you know, the same way you would ask, well, when do you try a, a experimental therapy that has you know potential toxicity? Who's the best tr- patient to um, to give more toxic therapy to that may be more effective? And then how long do you treat patients? And so I think transplant's part of that equation. And historically, it's been sort of the backstop when nothing else works. You go to transplant. I think there's been a movement to try to get people to transplant a little more early because um, we know it's effective. Reduced intensity conditioning has resulted in much better outcomes. But I mean, no offense, because I know you're the head of transplant, but the goal is to not send anyone to transplant because they're cured prior to that. Well, well that's okay. I would love to not have a job yeah, you know anymore. you would love to be an, uh, unemployed. I, yeah, if I was being employed, then that would be a really good thing. So, so, so that's, that's, that's good. We're just trying to figure out the best way to help the kids right. uh, uh, when needed. Is there, a, is there a lookout for the future of where you think the field's headed uh, in the next five or ten years or where it should be headed in the next five or ten years to help? improve our understanding of LCH and improve our treatment for these kids? Yeah, so I think that it's going to be an exciting, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be an exciting next decade. Uh, The the past five years has brought about, um, I think, exponential uh, increases on understanding the disease with the um, Barrett-Rollins group in Boston discovering that BRAF E600D has really unlocked, which is a mutation in uh, somatic mutation or mutation in the LCH dendritic cell. I think has really opened up a lot of um, uh, of possibilities by providing a biological foothold with which to understand the disease. So our group and many others are looking at, well, what are other mechanisms that are leading to LCH? Um, and then in the patients who we know have the this BRAF E600D mutation, which activates a particular growth pathway, you know, uh, are there ways that we can inhibit that pathway? Mm-hmm. Or even now that we know this information and we know that LCH isn't just uh, the classic uh, high risk and low risk designations of um, either having bone marrow, liver, and spleen involvement or not. We probably, ha- you know, we have molecular criteria. We have response to therapy, uh, and so I think that the goal will really be to customize therapy again, just to make sure everyone gets optimal therapy, meaning just as much as they need to be cured, but no more. Um, and then I think a final thing is the late effects. Um, you know, 30, 30 to 50 percent of patients with LCH have have long-term effects, which is pretty similar to other children with diseases that we treat, but some of them are really devastating. There's this uh, progressive neurodegenerative process that we don't understand at all, um, how that comes about, um, uh, especially patients who have lesions in their um, the sinus bones in their face or in their pituitary, for some reason seem to be susceptible to this process where they basically get progressive destruction of um, part of their brain through an inflammatory process. Um, and again, we don't understand that that process at all. So I think that's going to be an important thing to, uh, to sort out. Yeah. Is that after they're so-called cured or is that for the, in some cases, yeah, in some cases it shows up, uh, you know, several years after they're cured. Wow. Mm. Wow. And then, um, you mentioned that, you know, collaboration is really the way forward. And, um, previously you talked a little bit about, um, some of the ways that, uh, families can be involved, um, and that providers who, even if their patients are doing well, their, their resources, um, that, um, 
particularly with this new consortium that are going to be available to them, particularly the very cleverly named way that families can can provide some genetic material. Can you um, tell our, our listeners some ways that they can get involved in, in those activities as well? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think if it's possible to be treated on a clinical trial um, and the family's okay with that concept, it's we are always able to learn more from the experience than if patients are not treated on trial. So I think just in general, that's a, a concept for, for families who are interested. I mean, that can be a therapeutic trial or a, a biology trial. And so the, the Nacho Consortium, as you mentioned, um, is making an effort to um, provide a framework to uh, make it a little bit easier to open um, some pilot studies, as well as to run the Histocyte Society LCH4 trial. Um, and we'll, um, one of the major areas for, that we'll use the funding for is to collect biological samples as patients are treated so we can answer some of these questions about risk stratification uh, that we were talking about. Um, something that people can do today, um, you know, our group has uh, um, the support of a family group called the um, Histiocure Foundation and they have an active website that I think provides a lot of social support. Um, uh, as well as the fact they can lead, um, uh, give patients information about uh, some biology clinical trials that we're conducting. So basically anybody can contact the History of Cure Foundation or us uh, at Texas Children's Hospital and we can uh, remotely enroll you in our biology study which would allow us to collect clinical information uh, and any biology samples that have been collected for clinical purposes. And that's really been the basis of our research and we found it hugely helpful. Um, I should say also that the um, the Histiocytosis Association, which used to be called the Histiocytosis Association of America for decades, has been really um, uh, a huge area of support, both socially as well as for um, research funding uh, and also providing funding for the Histiocyte Society, uh, which has organized some clinical trials. Uh, and their website offers a lot of um, uh, uh, information that's just helpful in a general sense, as well as I think they, they can point to local providers as well as uh, people who are um, performing research at their local institutions. Okay, well, it looks like that's about it for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Carl, for being here. And thank you, Victor, our sound engineer, for, for uh, running the show. We're happy to read uh, your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note at TWIPO at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at TWIPOP podcast. And you can also sign up for an automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications, and to Scott Kenny and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable and curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.